Welcome to episode 59 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, I interviewed Sarah. Sarah served in the National Guard. She actually joined while in high school, and days after graduating from high school, she headed off to basic training. She deployed to Bosnia while she was in the National Guard, and when she returned home from Bosnia, she continued going to get her degree at Penn State and looked into ROTC, which is the Reserve Officer Training Corps program at universities across the country that allow you to get your degree and also gain a commission or become an officer in the military, and she did that. She continued to serve in the National Guard as an officer after graduating from Penn State, and then she headed off to military intelligence school where she met her husband and everything changed. In this episode, we talked about what it was like to be in the National Guard and transition out and how she already had found a way to incorporate her life skills into her daily life of her current job. So it wasn't as big of a transition out of the military as it is for a lot of people who serve on active duty. So I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to Sarah and to hear her experience of serving in the National Guard as both an enlisted member and an officer and then what it's like to be a military spouse. Can't wait for you to listen. Let's dive right in. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to another episode of Women of the Military podcast. Our guest this week is Sarah McMurrow. She is a veteran of the Army National Guard and a military spouse. She began her service as an enlisted soldier in the delayed entry program in 1998 while finishing her senior year of high school. While attending Penn State, Sarah deployed to Bosnia from 2002 to 2003. She later worked as a gold bar recruiter for Penn State's Reserve Officer Training Corps ROTC program before moving to Arizona for military intelligence training where she met her husband. With 20 years of military service, both as a service member and then as a military spouse, and over 10 years of cleared recruiting experience, Sarah enjoys helping veteran job seekers advance their career in her current role as account manager at clearedjobs.net. Welcome to the show, Sarah. I'm excited to hear your story. Well, thank you for having me, Amanda. I'm excited to share it with you. Let's start with why did you decide to join the military? All right, Amanda. So I'll tell you it's a funny story, but it's really just a recruiter called my parents' house and wanted to talk to me. I don't know how they got my information. You know, that's how recruiters roll. They just find the information and they called and said, you know, we want to tell you about this. And I said, okay. And they came to my parents' house and my parents supported me in my decision. It was a very quick turnaround, but I don't come from a military family. I, you know, I mean, we have, like my grandfather was in World War II, but nothing that, you know, where I'm carrying on some legacy of, of military, I'm not. But I said, okay. And the rest was history. And so you joined during high school. Did you start doing drill weekends before you graduated? 
I did. I did. I drilled for about a year before I went away to training, which was nice because I got to learn a little bit and wasn't quite as naive when I got to basic training. Although I do remember wearing a very bright tie-dye shirt when I got dropped off to go to basic training. Nothing like, you know, fitting right in, not standing out at all. Nobody warned you about that. (laughs) They're like, hey, you should wear this shirt. Be nice and, you know, nice neutral colors fit in with everyone else. Not me. And Pennsylvania had, and I don't know if they still have this, but Pennsylvania had a program where for National Guard, where you would get dropped off. I think it was three days before basic training. So I actually had a couple of days to learn a little bit before I flew out to basic training. I don't know if that's across the board for National Guard or if that's just a Pennsylvania program. So then you graduated from high school after doing drill for about a year. And then how quickly after your graduation from high school did you go to basic training? About two weeks. There was no fun after graduation from high school. I got my stuff ready and was on my way to South Carolina for the hottest part of the year. That would be pretty hot. After you finished boot camp, you went to, well, we call it tech school advanced training. That's what the army calls it. And what were you learning to do? What was your job going to be? My advanced training, and I don't even think, I don't even know if I put this in there because I started in supply, which was a, I don't, I don't want to say a waste of what I probably was capable of doing, but it was a, a situation where I learned that when you're talking with a recruiter, that of course they're trying to fill spots, but to take a little more time to investigate what's available to you based on your your scores, your test scores, and maybe make a different decision. It was very boring to me, but it's important. Someone has to keep track of what's happening in supply. But that is what I learned first. And But I didn't stay in that for very long. Did you switch out of that before you even left for basic training or did you? No, I went through all the training for that. And then When we found out that our unit was deploying to Bosnia, that was when they said that they needed a few people to reclass into a signal MOS. And I said, I'll do it. So I went back to school. And then, so you went back to school and then you, and then you deployed to Bosnia? Right. So the way that that school worked is I did it during my drill weekends for a certain amount of time. And then in the summer, I went away for another couple of weeks or so to finish it. I don't remember how long it was. Okay. Because you were going to school at Penn State while you were still drilling. Right. So it's the timeline's a little bit crazy, but, you know, somehow we managed to figure it all out. And then, so you guys knew kind of pretty far out that you guys were going to Bosnia or how much time did you have from when you knew that you were going to when you actually left? It had to have been over a year. I don't remember. I distinctly remember being in formation and the announcement happening, you know, that we 28th ID had been tasked with, you know, S-412, which was Stabilization Force 12 out of Bos- in Bosnia and that they needed people to reclass. So I remembered that all happening. And in order for me to finish all of that school, it had to have been at least a year. Yeah, that's crazy. So when you were at Bosnia... How is that different from being like in the guard? Obviously, you're doing your job every day, but and you're overseas. But how is that different for just your military experience? I think that, you know, one of the challenges with being reserve component is you don't have as many opportunities to do your job, you know, to operate as a full unit. And of course, we had training 
you know, where we would all as a division go through training, but it's still something, something completely different where you're now going to live that life like an active duty soldier does every day, but we're doing it with, you know, a a stabilization mission. It wasn't combat anymore, but we were doing that overseas. So it was, I mean, there were certainly some growing pains, but, you know, like I may have mentioned, we took over for the 25th ID out of Hawaii. So we were taking over for an active duty division going in as a National Guard division for the first time. And so it was... It was definitely a rewarding experience and definitely different than than the National Guard drilling weekends that we had. You're taking your training and doing it like for real. And it's not just an exercise. It's like an actual. Right. And we spent a month in Germany before and Hohenfels to apply you know, what we had been learning a little bit more to, you know, basically just set up shop there for a month and go through all the, everything that we were going to be doing, you know, setting up the the radios and everything and going out and setting up retrans on the, you know, on mountaintops in Germany to set up communications. So we had a little bit of, of that before we went out to, to Bosnia, which was, I think, really important in reserve component when you don't have a lot of opportunity to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what do you remember as being like the most challenging part of being deployed? I think, I mean, obviously being away from home is always a challenge. And I've always been very independent and very strong. So it wasn't, as I got to know people, it wasn't as bad. I think that you... People take you a couple of different ways. You know, one being a female deployed, you have a situation where we're, where you are one of a very few. So you have people either take you in as your kid, you know, as someone's daughter, because in a lot of situations, I mean, I was in my early 20s, I was young enough to be a lot of people's daughter. So, you know, a lot of people kind of take you under their wing and take care of you in that way, which is, you know, can be very helpful. But it's, you know, you also have to be able to stand strong as, you know, an independent soldier too. So there's kind of, you know, it's a little bit on both sides. I didn't feel like I was looked upon as not being as strong as, you know, as the males. And I certainly continued to to work hard to do things on my own. You know, the the video teleconferencing that I did was me. You know, I did that. I had to go and set up those things on my own. You know, I had a lot of tasks that were just mine so that, you know, I was able to kind of prove, you know, what I was capable of. And then I also had an opportunity to do, you know, some physical things while I was there. You know, some, a lot of running races and a a huge ruck march. I think it was 30K ruck, ruck march in Bosnia that I got to do. And, you know, those things I think really help female Females, it kind of empowers females to say, hey, I can do this just like everyone else. And I think that was that was really helpful. So when you came home from Bosnia, you went back to going to school and you started looking into doing ROTC. Why did you decide to start looking into ROTC? You know, I've been trying to think about when that exactly started, why I said I'll check it out. I don't know if someone said, hey, you should check this out, or if I said, you know, hmm, maybe I will. But, you know, people had always talked about, you know, maybe being an officer because of my leadership capabilities would be a good place for me to 
to go. So maybe that's where it all started. I'm not sure. But, you know, it's nice to be able to go into an RTC program and not have to commit to anything right away. You know, having an opportunity to learn a little bit first. I was, when I did decide to do it, I was a simultaneous membership cadet. So I was doing both the RTC program as well as continuing to be a drilling soldier at my National Guard unit. So, you know, I had a lot of opportunity to share what I learned, you know, in the military with RTC students because, you know, more often than not, the cadets have not had any military experience. So, you know, you have, you know, not only do you do classroom work, but you also do, you know, tactical training. So that's something that a lot of people have never touched on. So it was, it was a lot of fun for me to be able to share that. Yeah, that would be such a great resource for the other cadets to learn from someone who had experience and not just in the like classroom setting, but in the real world. So you graduated from Penn State and commissioned as a lieutenant, and then what happened? So I commissioned as a Signal Corps officer and then started drilling as a Signal Corps officer and realized that that was not my cup of tea. I'm not an IT person. And the more I've learned over the years about what the Signal officers do, I it reinforced my decision <laughs> that it was the right decision because they tend to be very you know technical background and that is not me. I just, because I was in a signal unit, I just assumed that I should just, you know, choose the branch signal because that's what I was doing. But I was very fortunate that one of the officers, the actual, the G2, so the the senior intel officer that was with us deployed was the G2 of the Pennsylvania National Guard. So I was able to do a really, really quick interview with him over the phone so that he could initiate my branch transfer from signal to military intelligence. And then during this, all of this was happening, of course, we had to change my school date because now I'm not going to Georgia, I'm going to Arizona. And my school date wasn't going to be until March of the following year. So that was what, nine months or something like that. So for those next nine months, I had to spend my time doing something. So I was very fortunate that, you know, between Penn State's funding for Gold Bar Recruiting and the National Guard's funding, I was able to work as a recruiter for the ROTC program for the entire time period in between the two. So what was that experience like? What were you doing exactly to recruit people for ROTC? One of the big things that I did was during the ROTC, or not, I'm sorry, not the ROTC, but the orientation for freshmen, I was able to have a booth at a lot of those kind of expo things and outside of the orientation speakers so that I could talk with the incoming freshmen about ROTC, not just Army, but you know, I was obviously there specifically for Army, but, you know, everyone has you know, different preferences. So I was able to talk with them about the opportunities that there are in RTC, the scholarships that are available, and that you don't have to commit to being in the military as soon as you, you know, walk in the door. But you can start to learn a little bit and it never hurts to have some leadership training for anyone, especially when you go to a university as large as Penn State with more than 40,000 students. Having some, an ability to find an identity and to have some leadership skills is really important at a place that you're really just a number. And so I got to talk with incoming freshmen a lot. I got to plan the freshman orientation. I guess it was a social that we had at a park and found out that the incoming freshman class that they had for the ROTC program was the largest they had had in many years. And it wasn't, you know, because I was special, it was because they had someone to do 
what I did to get out there and talk with people and to have a female to be able to do that, I think is really important too, because you tend to see more males in the military and that's just, that's just what it is. I mean, that's a statistic. It's not, you know, nothing that I'm making up. We all know that, but you know, so males tend to gravitate toward it because, you know, when you think of the military and you think of, you know, little boys playing with their GI Joe and their little army guys or whatever, you know, that's just like a natural progression. But for females, you don't see as much of that. And there's, you know, less long time ago history with military, with females in the military, other than, you know, you really think of nurses in the military. And that is kind of what most people know. So being able to get out there and talk with them and, and, and nurses too. I mean, Penn State has a great nursing program. So that was a, a great opportunity for them to, you know, serve the country as well as, as go to nursing school. Exactly. Yeah. And I like that you said ROTC is a great place for you to learn about if you want to do the military and you can you can try it out without a commitment, which is a really important thing that people know about if they're considering doing it, that they might be too afraid to go because they feel like they're going to get sucked in and like not be able to get out of it. But you can try it out and see if it works for you. And then if it doesn't, just go on your way. We had a lot of people in ROTC who tried it out first semester and it wasn't for them. So, And that's okay. And, yeah. you know, not everything is for everyone. We have so many opportunities in this country to to try different things. And, you know, unless you've accepted a scholarship or something, you're pretty, you know, you, you can really choose what you want to do. And, you know, plus then they, they can come in and learn about the different branches of the military as well as the, the different branches of each service. So an army, you know, the like the military intelligence branch, combat arms, you know, there there's a lot out there to do. It's not just GI Joe, which right. is really cool and a lot of fun stuff, but it's not for everyone. And so you can learn about those other there's other opportunities. Just like the Air Force isn't just mm-hmm. pilots. There's That's more. right. That's <laughs> right. And we have pilots in the Army too. So. That's true. <laughs> so you finished doing that for about nine-ish months and then you went to Arizona for your military intelligence training. When I was at my military intelligence training, I met who became my husband. So my life, my life course changed quite a bit. I went from thinking I was going to graduate from college, be a personal trainer in a big city because my degree is in exercise science, kinesiology, going to move to a big city. I'm going to be a trainer. This is going to be great. And then I met my husband and moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which was not the large city that I thought that I was going to. But, you know, it's worth it for sure. And, you know, that started our lives. But it's, you know, I had an officer that I worked with at Penn State that when I left Penn State, she said, you never know, you might meet your husband when you get to Fort Huachuca. And I laughed. And there I was only but a couple of weeks after we got there that I met him. And the rest there was history. So how exactly did you guys meet? We were in the same class. So I think, you know, just a group of us started, you know, hanging out and just got to know him. And when he talks about how we met, it's not the typical, you know, where someone meets their spouse and they say, well, I saw, you know, her on the other side of the room and she was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I had to meet her. No, not my husband. My husband will tell you that he was interested in me because I had the strongest leadership capabilities and the and the smartest person in the class. And that's why he wanted to meet me. <laughs> so, but, you know, in the end, everything, everything worked out. It's kind of an ongoing joke. And honestly, I feel like that it speaks volumes about, about him and what's important to him. And I, I would much rather be smart and be known for having that smart, independent personality because that makes me a better leader and role model for my kids too. So 
I think that's cute and funny. And it shows a lot about his character and what he was looking for. How long were you guys at training and when did you get married? We were at training for about four months, like five months. We graduated in July. We got married in November. So I think we were together for a total of about eight months before we got married. But it was your, I, I don't want to say typical, like it's a negative thing, but the transition to an active duty duty station where deployment is coming up. And if you want to have any information and know what's going on during a deployment and God forbid something happens and you, you need to be notified and it's much easier to be the spouse than it is to be the girlfriend. So that's, you know, kind of where the decision came from. It wasn't like we weren't going to get married anyway, but it probably wouldn't have been in November, you know, as soon as we met because deployment was coming in early January. That's, that was the best decision for us. So I literally, we were at my parents' house and I said, we were going to have to ask my dad. So he had to go, he walked out to go ask my dad. My dad said, yes, of course. So, but it was not, it was not your textbook romance where, you know, it was a big surprise proposal. And he asked my dad when I didn't know and all, it was not that it was quick. And so after you graduated from the officer military intelligence training, you had to go back to Pennsylvania and then get switched from the Pennsylvania National Guard to the North Carolina National Guard? Right. So it's, I mean, it's a little bit of a paperwork fiasco, but it can be done. I mean, this your state has to release you and, and state getting you has to accept you. But, you know, because we were getting married and I had, you know, always done the right thing, if you will, hadn't given anyone any issues. So they, you know, they were willing to to do that. And it didn't take more than, you know, a month or so. And then I drilled, started drilling in North Carolina. So then what was it like for you to be essentially a brand new military spouse and still be in the guard and have your husband deploy right after you got married? You know, I'm a very strong-willed person. I've always been like that. So, you know, it was, I can do it. You know, it was, okay, well, let's, this is what we have to do. Let's handle this military thing. I mean, you're deployed. What do we need to do? Okay, we'll talk on Yahoo Messenger and, you know, with a fancy webcam, talk through the the patch. I don't know if you remember, but someone has to, you would have to call like a patch at a military installation. They would forward you to whoever you wanted to talk to. And then there was always a time limit. I think it would hang up on you or something when it was done. But that's how we communicated. So I was able to handle that part. And then as far as being the reserve component side, I mean, it was certainly a learning curve because I was coming to a place that no one knew me in the unit. So no one knew what I had done in the past other than what's on paper. So you're, you know, you do have to prove yourself right away. And I was like, okay, I'm a brand new second lieutenant and no one here knows me. And, you know, and I was in an aviation unit. I was not a pilot. So I was, you know, one of the very few not pilot <laughs> officers in the unit. But you know, usually I think if you're a, a strong person, you choose your path. So I knew that this is what I needed to do. And I'm not afraid to go in and do what I need to do and kind of make a name for myself wherever I go. So it really wasn't, you know, that transition wasn't very, wasn't very challenging for me personally. That makes sense. I deployed in 2010. So we had Skype by that point, but we only had them in like certain areas. <laughs> if the internet was strong enough, wherever you or the network or whatever it was that you were trying to use. They, well, they didn't have, they had Wi-Fi when I left, but when I got there, they didn't have Wi-Fi and you had to go in like the computer lab area. Oh, yes. I remember that. I completely forgot about that. Even yeah. when I was deployed, we had to go to the computer lab. That's right. Yeah. But I worked in it. I mean, I was in the, the communications. I was in the S6. So we had computers in there. But still, I mean, I wasn't, you know, chatting with people while I was working when I was deployed. 
But I forgot that that was how things were, that you had Mm -hmm. to go to a lab. Yeah. The last month I was there when I was at Bagram, they had Wi-Fi and I could Skype whenever I wanted. And it was like, this is so cool. This (laughs) is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you decide to get out or stop, stop doing National Guard and get out of the military? So it was, there were two parts to it. One was my knees were really bad. And that started when I was in ROTC and I kept trying to push through and I had so many, you know, challenges and it was something that it was just going to progressively get worse. It was a cartilage situation under my kneecaps and what have you. But so that was one part, you know, how good of a leader can I be if I'm not supposed to be running or I'm not supposed to be rucking and all of those things that are important to training, especially as, you know, things changed in the military and, you know, deployments were coming much more often and needing to be, you know, stronger. So that was one part of it. And then the other part too is, you know, being married to an active duty service member who's going to be deploying often. How are we going to build a relationship as a couple? How are we going to have kids if it is consistently, you know, alternating deployments? Because our first three years of marriage would have been just that. And so we made the decision that, okay, we, you know, we will pursue the med board like we had been suggested to do so. And of course, you know, I was med boarded out because of my knees and and that's okay because I continue to support and be on the, you know, on the spouse side and be, you know, supporting my husband and his soldiers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what was your transition out of the military from being in the military to being a military spouse? So on the reserve component side, that transition's a lot different. Now it can be challenging if you are someone who was an active guard person who has not only the, you know, week in a month, two weeks in the summer, but you're also working full-time at the unit as a soldier because that exists. You know, a lot of people do that. That would be similar to an active duty transition where, you know, you have to find yourself and figure out how do you apply these skills that you've gained over the years as a service member to a resume and then convey that information to, you know, your future employer. And then what am I going to do with my life? You know, I've been doing this my whole life. Now, how do I figure out what I want to do next? But as a regular National Guard officer, I didn't have that same challenge because I was already employed while I was in the National Guard. And, you know, after I graduated from college, I started my career in recruiting. So I was doing that at the same time as I was in the military. That makes a lot of sense. So what has it been like to be a military spouse and have your husband be active duty? Have you faced any challenges as being a military spouse? So as a military spouse, one of the things that I, and being a, a military spouse as an officer's wife is a little different. And I've, I've learned that over the years, you know, he's, my husband's a major. And so we have gone through, you know, command and a lot of different, you know, staff type of positions. And so it's, it's a lot different. You don't have the same types of, of support groups, really, because you're not always in a unit where you have a lot of soldiers under you. It may be just a few people where you're belonging to, you know, some kind of a headquarters, right? When he, my husband was in command, that was a really great opportunity for me because I was able to 
you know, head the family readiness group and, you know, kind of some of the things that I had seen over the years, be able to, to try to fix some of those things. Not, I mean, it's hard to fix everything everywhere, but you know, that when I had mentioned earlier where, you know, getting married was important to make sure that I knew what was going on. That is a, that's a challenge in the military because not every family is made up of, you know, a spouse and a service member. Sometimes, you know, it's parents, grandparents, or, you know, a girlfriend, a fiance, you know, how do we include all of these people and get the information to all of these people when one, they're here, but they're not spouses. So encouraging them to come out to do the activities and to be part of meetings and know what's going on in the unit. But then having, you know, family, the the people who are the soldiers family not be local because that's not unusual. The parents don't move with the soldier, not, you know, most of the time. So how do we, you know, how do we incorporate them into into the unit. So those were challenges that that we faced on that on that side, but I'm very fortunate that my husband is very dedicated to that and wanting because he's a very family-oriented person and helping us to try to make that happen. I stayed in leadership for the family readiness group for a lot longer because the incoming commander was not married and neither was the first sergeant. So I was in that position for quite a long time, which was which was good because we were able to kind of make some headway, you know, our unit anyway, and hopefully take away some of the the negative thoughts about a family readiness group because there are challenges in places in certain units where there's no support or people have had poor experiences and then they come in to a new unit and they're you know they already have these negative thoughts well this is what it's been like for me in the past I'm not going to like this but you know trying to to fix some of that so that when they go onto their next unit that they're saying hey it's not all that bad here are some things that we did that you know were more inclusive and trying to be more supportive so that's probably the biggest challenge as a spouse I've seen over the years is trying to include everyone. Yeah, and that's great that you guys were able to work together and make those changes. So my last question will be, what would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? Cool. Okay. So we've talked a lot about a lot of this and some of the, you know, kind of what I have seen over the years and the, some of the challenges, but the challenges that I've seen weren't necessarily about being female. You know, I think that it's important to do your research, see what is available in the jobs that are out there because you don't have to be, you know, out and doing combat you know, all the time. I mean, you need to learn how to protect yourself. And, you know, that's part of the training. But there are so many opportunities. You can be active duty. You can be, you know, a reserve component where you can continue to have your career. There are opportunities to, you know, learn other languages. And, you know, first and foremost, you know, supporting your country and being part of something, something really big that, you know, such a small percentage of people ever do. And, you know, a lot of the success that I've seen in my life is because of of the leadership qualities that I've been able to build on, you know, being able to get stronger as a person and being able to, you know, be a positive role model for, you know, other little girls and, and women and, you know, being around military spouses all the time. You know, that's what I do every day is either I'm talking to service members, I'm talking to military spouses, I am, you know, even where I go to the gym, it's all military spouses. You know, being able to to share, you know, what I've seen over the years and meet other people who are service members turned spouses, which I think is really, really cool. You know, when I find someone like that too. So, you know, just don't be afraid. There's there's so much out there to see and to do. And, you know, it there's it doesn't hurt to 
to look, you know, and if it's not a fit, that's okay. But there's a lot out there. That's very true. There's lots of opportunities. And I think the advice to look at the jobs and not feel pressured to do something that you don't want to do is really important because sometimes I think recruiters can make you feel like you have to choose this job. But the reality is they need you more than you need them. So make sure that you advocate for yourself and pick something that you want to do. Absolutely. Because you want to love it. You're better at things that you love. If you don't like what you're doing, you won't be very good at it. And that goes for anything in your life. You know, you have to have passion for things that you're going to be doing in the long term. (laughs) That's so true. Well, Anna, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you and hear about your experience of being in the National Guard. I think I learned a few things about how you do it and how there's different challenges that you face in that role. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem, Amanda. Thank you so much for including me and letting me share what I've learned over the years. And I hope that it's helpful to to some other you know, young females out there, especially that are trying to decide what they want to do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. 